You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. I'm going to invite the congregation to stand one more time as you turn to Genesis 35. Uh, That is a a custom of ours here to stand for the reading of God's word as if royalty were walking in the room. How much more should we stand as God is now speaking through his word? Genesis 35, it's the second half of this chapter beginning in verse 16 through verse 29. And these are the very words of God, verse 16. And they, that is Jacob and his family, journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benani, but his father called his name Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Verse 22, when Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servants, Dan and Nephtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servants, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Verse 27. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kareth Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac, verse 28, were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. And this, beloved, is God's holy word. Please be seated. We are moving through the book of Genesis. This is a comfortable place for us. We love to move through books of the Bible, and we are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning, and we come to the end of chapter 35 in this great history of redemption. The end of chapter 35 is complex. It is sad, yet hopeful. It is sad because Rachel dies while giving birth to her last son, Benjamin. It's hopeful because Benjamin, the 12th promised son of Israel, is born. It's sad because Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, lies with Bilhah, who is essentially his stepmom. This section is also sad because Isaac, the second of the three patriarchs, passes away. 
But this section is hopeful because God had preserved his people and his covenant promise remains. This section, though brief, is full of mixed emotions, sadness and hope. The final section of Genesis 35 reminds us of the complexity of our own lives. Throughout life, there are burials and there are births. There is beauty and there is betrayal. In one season, you find yourself in the house of laughter. And in the next, you can find yourself in the house of sorrow. Life is both complex and unpredictable and dynamic. Multiple things can be happening at once. At our dinner table earlier this week, we were belly laughing. We were laughing as a family as a result of something our four-year-old said, which is fairly common. But on that same meal, that same meal, it transitioned somewhat out of nowhere. And we began to, to be saddened as we were praying for all that is happening in Ukraine, for, the God, for God's people there and the instability. So the question for us this morning is, what do we do with these seemingly conflicting emotions? What do we do with this dynamic that is life? The house of laughter and the house of sorrow. It's been my experience as a human being and as a pastor that many of us, present company included, try to curate or control these complex dynamics. We try to insulate our lives to somewhat control, like like the climate of of a room, a thermostat. If we can just dial down the sadness just a bit and dial up the joy and the happiness. We try to take matters in our own hands. And of course, this is understandable because life is unpredictable and scary at times. We could be laughing, playing a board game, and then in the next moment, get a phone call with devastating news on the other end. So a desire to control the climate of our emotions is understandable. Even the idea of isolating can become appealing. However, what we learn in this text and what we've been learning in Genesis is that when we take self-preservation or self-protection into our own hands, we actually end up being less protected and indeed more vulnerable and less prepared for sorrow. But instead, if that is true, then the opposite is true. If we, instead, what Genesis is teaching us, if we yield to the divine protection of God and trust that he will be the stability of our days, we will still experience the full range of emotions. God does not promise to protect us from sadness or heartache we will still experience the full spectrum of emotions, but we will actually become more protected from the main threats in life. And the main threat in life is not the death of our bodies. It is the death of our souls. You and I, at a fundamental level, were not designed to protect ourselves. 
We were not designed to follow our hearts and we were not designed to protect ourselves. Instead, we were hardwired, designed by God to be protected by God. That is why God over and over and over again throughout the scripture says, I am a strong tower for my people. I am a refuge. I am a mighty fortress. He uses all of these adjectives to remind us that he is our safe place. He is the one who preserves our soul. He is our protection. He, and he reminds us of this over and over again because he knows that we are consistently inclined as fallen human beings towards self-preservation because life is scary and complex. And so God is reminding us that he will be our protection even in death, even in Death. And so with that as a bit of an introduction to our text this morning, let's look now to our text and witness God's divine protection and sure promises for his people. And I've said this often to you. What I don't want you to do is check your drama at the door and not bring it in here. That's what we sort of want to do. We want to just check all the drama there. No, no. I want us to bring all of that drama in here under the sovereign light of God's word and let us hear from God and let his light shine on those things that are causing fear and conflict in our lives. And so the first scene opens up in this complex portion of scripture in verse 16 and we have a hard labor, a hard labor. Look at verse 16 and following. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. Now this news from the midwife to Rachel would have been a blessing to her. It would have been an encouragement to Rachel because Rachel had prayed for another son. Back in chapter 30, verse 24, I don't know if you remember this, but Rachel prayed that God would bring her another son. And so at the height of her hard labor, the midwife brought welcomed news that God had indeed answered her prayer that another son was to be born. God had provided another boy. And yet the joyous news is mixed, right? Which is what so much of life is. There's this mixed emotion. It's mixed now with the departure of her soul. Look at verse 18. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying. Make note of how Moses, our author, describes death. The departure of the soul. As her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. Rachel wanted to name him Benoni. Benoni means son of sorrow. I think in part because his birth was the cause of her death, certainly, but I think more is going on in the heart of Rachel. She knows that with her departure, she will not get to be his mother. 
that she would not be the one to raise this answer to her prayers. Someone else would mother her new son. So she desired to name him Benoni, son of sorrow. But Jacob wasn't having it. Jacob instead wanted to name him Benjamin, which means son of my side. And I wrestled with this. Why? You know, that's really bold for Jacob to push back on Rachel's dying wish to name her son Benoni. And I I got to think of what's going on in the heart of Jacob. And I think that what's going on is actually more endearing. Jacob did not want to remember Benjamin as a son of sorrow. Benjamin was the final son from his favorite wife, his beloved wife, Rachel. And so he's saying, no, no, I want to name him Benjamin, son from my side, son of my side. This is my final son from my beloved Rachel. Finally, Moses reports the sad news about Rachel, verse 19. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It's the pillar, Moses is our author here. It's the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on, verse 21, and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Kent Hughes, a commentator, picks up on the bitter irony of this scene. He says, quote, in her barrenness, Rachel had called out to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. I don't know if you remember that. She called out in her anger, give me children or I shall die. And now, now uh, Kenneth Hughes says, and now it was the gift of children that took her life. But here again, we're confronted with that dynamic, that mix of emotions, a beautiful new baby and the death of Rachel. Joy and sorrow mingled together. A hard labor. Well, the family tragedy continues. The next scene is a brief but emotionally exhausting detail about Reuben and his stepmom. I think it's brief just because Moses is having mercy on us because this is an emotionally taxing detail. This is Reuben, the firstborn son of Jacob, lying with essentially his stepmother. This is verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, concubine in Israel, heard of it. So that we're all clear, if you're just visiting with us, Reuben is the firstborn son of Jacob, as I said. Uh, He is uh, Rachel's boy. Rather, he is Leah's boy. And he lays with Bilhah, who is Rachel's servant, and also the mother of his two brothers. So if you think your family history is a little twisted, maybe you feel a little lighter this morning as a result of this. Essentially, the point is Reuben is intimate with his stepmom. And aside from this being incredibly um, sinful and unnatural, unnatural, the question is, why does he do it? Why does he do it? we're, We're left to speculate. Some have concluded that this is just a sin of passion. 
this just overcame Reuben and he lay with Bilhah. Perhaps it was just a sin of passion. I think there's more going on here. We know that Reuben is Leah's boy, her firstborn son, and he is a protector of Leah. And Reuben is well aware of his father's preference for Rachel. And now he knows how this has hurt his mom, Leah, over the years. And so as another writes here, Reuben sensed that with Rachel's death, her servant now Bilhah would become Jacob's favorite over his mother, Leah. And so Reuben seduced her to ensure that she could not rival Leah's position. So it seems like Reuben, despite his despicable method, it seems like he's trying to preserve the dignity of his mother, Leah. And again, we see perhaps a good desire from a son to protect the dignity and legacy of his mom mixed, mixed with the tragedy of human effort to protect and to preserve. Another confrontation of mixed Feelings and emotions. We do know this on his deathbed, Jacob would remember the mixed character of Reuben. You can jot this down. This is Genesis 49, verses 3 and 4. This is on Jacob's deathbed. This is what Jacob says Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Preeminent in dignity, you are Reuben, yet unstable as water. So a hard labor from Rachel was followed followed by an unthinkable act. And our final scene now picks up on the tension that we've been feeling. And I've been remarking on this morning, the sadness of the present with a hope that looks forward to the promises of God. The sadness of the present mixed with a hope that looks forward to the promises of God. And so our final scene I've entitled this morning, Looking Forward. The end of verse 30, or rather the end of verse 22, says, now the sons of Jacob were 12. Verse 23, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and now Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Nephtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Memre, or Kareth Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. And he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. That final verse in chapter 35 is a tender moment if you've been following the story of Jacob. The fact that Esau and Jacob bury their father together is an important insight. 
because from the womb, they've been caught in this bitter rivalry. From that moment when Jacob was grasping at the heels of his brother Esau into the moment when Jacob swindled his brother out of his birthright and his blessing, they have been warring siblings from the womb. And and now here they stand reconciled before their father's tomb and they bury their father together. This final scene in chapter 35 ends with the passing of one generation, Isaac, and the preserving of the next. All 12 sons of Jacob are recorded at the end of chapter 35, and all 12 sons will take center stage starting in verse or chapter 37 with a particular emphasis on the story of Joseph. If you have not read chapters 37 to 50 in Genesis, it is a remarkable story. But this is good news. God has been faithful to his covenant promises. He was faithful to Isaac, who was full of years, 180 years. And now all 12 sons are preserved. And chapter 37 is coming. God's faithfulness to his covenant remains. I said at the beginning of our time this morning that this final section of Genesis, again, reminds us of the complexity of life. Throughout life, just like in chapter 35, there are burials and there are births. We just celebrated six of them this morning. Throughout life, there is beauty and there is betrayal. And life is both complex and unpredictable. We truly do not know what is behind the next corner. Is it a birth? Is it a burial? Is it beauty or is it brutality? And the reason for this tension is because we live in the tension of the already and not yet. I think that's the tension that this text puts its finger on this morning. We live in the pressure almost of the already and the not yet. There is a present experience of God's kingdom at hand in this text. There is beauty and there is birth. Benjamin is born. The 12th promised son of Israel is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. God has preserved his people. And yet there is clear evidence that the kingdom is still to come. Betrayal and burial is still a part of Jacob's life. And it's a part of ours today. And so the temptation is real. It is real. As we sit here this morning, the temptation for us is to try to self-protect by insulating our lives. You know what I mean by insulating, creating distance and padding to muffle or to, to separate us from the inevitable pains of life. But then they inevitably come. And the more insulated we are, the less prepared we are for the sorrows that are coming. But if our time in Genesis has taught us anything, family, it's that God is near to his people, always. He is near to his people at the births and the burials. He is near to his people in the beautiful moments of life and in the betraying moments of life. God does not just show up for the good moments. 
He's there for us all of the time. If Genesis has taught us anything, it's that this is a God who is present with his people. Even in death. That's the thing we want to think the less about, the least about, because it provokes the most uncertainty. None of us have been on the other side. None of us here have been on the other side. That is a common reality that we all share. And at times we want to throw our shoulders back and act as if, no, I'm not afraid. And other times when we're more honest, we, we are afraid. As we close, I want us, I need us, I need me to notice something profoundly hopeful in this text. And it doesn't appear to be hopeful as you read it at first. It's the three burials in chapter 35. We say, that's not hopeful. <laughs> that's the thing that provokes fear, not hope. Burials. No, they are hopeful. Burials, burials are hopeful. We have the burial of Deborah. That was in our time last week in verse 8. That was Rachel's nurse or Rebecca's nurse. Then we have the burial of Rachel after she gives birth to her last boy. And then at the end of the chapter, we have the burial of Isaac, the second major patriarch. Three burials. And the question is, why are these burials hopeful? Why are they hopeful for the people of God? Calvin writes this. Whenever we read about God's people burying their dead, let us remember that was no foolish ceremony. But instead, when we read of God's people burying their dead, that is a living symbol of the future resurrection. They would bury their dead like you and I would plant a seed in the ground, expecting new life to come from it. None of us plants a seed in the ground expecting nothing to happen. But God's people from the very beginning would bury their dead bodies expecting that that was not the end, but only the beginning. From cover to cover, beloved, the Bible is crystal clear on this teaching. Death is not the end. Death is not the end for those who put their faith in Christ. The Bible says that when the believer dies, their soul goes immediately into the comfort and the presence of the Lord. Notice that brief description from Moses. Her soul was departing for she was dying. The Bible says that when the believer dies, their soul goes immediately, immediately into the comfort and presence of the God who promises to protect us even in death. But if we have hope in this life only, 
then self-preservation makes total sense. If we have hope in this life only, then self-protecting and numbing and insulating ourselves makes total sense. If we have hope in this life only, then trusting God when life is hard sounds foolish and time-wasting. But again, over and over and over again, the Bible says to those who have ears to hear, do not place ultimate hope in this life only. Instead, hope in God who has placed eternity in your hearts and has prepared a resurrection for those who trust in the work of his son. One of the reasons we are never satisfied with the joys of this present life is because the Bible says God has placed eternity in our hearts. And so every joy is stunted. Every thrill, every happy moment, every birth is stunted because eternity is in our hearts. We're longing for another world. It makes perfect sense to self-preserve if this is it. But it makes no sense if a resurrection's coming. And if God's people back in chapter 35 of Genesis, of Genesis, were looking forward to a bright future of resurrection glory, how much more? How much more should we, on this side of Christ's glorious resurrection, look forward to this future hope? In just a few short weeks, Christians all around the world are going to stop what they're doing. The calendar is going to break and we're going to celebrate something that changed the course of human history and changed all of your hope and mine. Christians across the globe will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, his victory over sin and death and his glorious victory over the grave. He becomes, as Paul writes, the first fruits of the resurrection, the first fruits, the first one to be raised, meaning there's a harvest of resurrections that come after him. And all God's people are giddy. We get really giddy in April every year or March when it's on that weird calendar thing. We get really giddy because hope is kindled. A guarantee is given There is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. In fact, Paul writes, and we'll close with this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 and 25. Paul says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. And let me just add, every tin pot dictator that thinks they're in control, God will come and smite them out. That was my ad. That is not Paul. 
Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is the one we are most afraid of. That is death. And there is coming a day, beloved, if this is true, and I believe it is, there is coming a day when all God's people will say with utter confidence as we stare at the grave, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the question for us all this morning, wherever you are in life, is this. Do I want to keep self-preserving, self-protecting? Or is it time? Is it time to humble myself? To open my folding arms and give in to the God who is there. Who promises not to protect us from every tribulation of life. But who promises to protect us ultimately from our ultimate fear, the fear of death. The death of our souls. You might be asking, okay, what do, I, what do I do? I want that. What do I do? One phrase that shows up all throughout Scripture is humble yourself before the Lord. And I just want to confess to you, that is not something that you can conjure in and of yourself. We are bent towards self-preservation. We are bent towards the belief that we can do it since the garden, since chapter three in Genesis. But if you find yourself this morning inclined to humbling yourself before the mighty hand of God, then a miracle is taking place in your heart. You are letting down your arms and you are bending your knees to a God that doesn't just want to humble you, but wants to protect you because he loves you. So may, may the Lord grant his people mercy as we face the joys and sorrows in this present life. And may he grant us deep joy and expectation as we look back at Christ's resurrection and we look forward to ours. Amen.